Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Dr. Matt Jordan. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, what's new and noteworthy in my life, and I promise I will keep this fairly short because right now, it kind of feels like March or April all over again. I mean, yeah, I can go into work, but very much feels like Groundhog's Day where, you know, every day kind of come to work, I'm home, kids are at home because they're still not, I mean, they're, somebody asked today, they're like, oh, they're in school? I'm like, well, they're in school, but they don't go to school. So, yes, still trying to uh, navigate that landscape, hoping that, you know, in the next couple days we get some good news um, because there seems to be, you know, a push here lately to try and get at least elementary kids back in school. Frankly, I think they need it. I think it's safe. Um, but I am not an epidemiologist. I am not a infectious disease expert. I am just a concerned parent that also thinks their kids need to be outdoors and have other kids and socialize and, and be kids. So excited that hopefully that will be coming down the pipeline soon, but also not holding my breath. Um, the one thing that has been really nice here lately is the kiddos did start soccer uh, last week. So it's been good. That gives us a feeling of normalcy. Gives them something to look forward to. They had their first games last weekend. And, man, I tell you, Kendall probably gave her best effort, best soccer game I've ever seen that girl play. Uh, and there was a moment in the second half, because they play long now. They're playing on a bigger field. Uh, they play two 25-minute halves. So, yeah, they can platoon and sub in and out. But, I mean, it's a big jump from whatever four eight-minute quarters that they were playing before. So, Really proud of her because in the second half, she looked gas about 10 minutes in. And then her and this other little girl, maybe the last five, six minutes of the game were just absolute terrors. Running all over the field, knocking the ball away, harassing the other team. So that was fun. And just, you know, getting out there, getting my kids around other kids, letting them feel like children again has been really fun. And just looking forward to that continuing to grow. Um, right now they're only going once a week with practice, but next week they start twice a week practice. And they'll have a game on the weekend. So just looking forward to finding some sort of routine and rhythm with them, just getting them outside, letting them have a little bit of fun. Uh, coaching is still very much a thing. While some of my college kids have headed back and you know they're in classes and they're doing things, I don't really know what their sports season is entails or if that is going to happen. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with a lot of them because man, they put in so much work this spring, this summer. Uh, it would be a shame for them to lose their sports season. Again, I'm not an infectious disease expert, so I'm not going to comment any more on that. But man, I just know how hard these kids work and I know how much time and energy they put into their sport, getting their bodies ready to play. Um, and they're excited. You know, They put in the work and they want it to go out and show on the competitive field. So It'll be interesting because some have left, some are still here. I, mean, I may have some for much longer than I expected. And, you know, with a lot of my off seasons, it's very neat and tidy. You know, the summer is my busiest time because I've got pretty much all my basketball guys. I've got all my college kids and they all kind of, you know, kind of just trail off end of August, first week in September. Pretty much everybody's gone and I have this law. Well, I can tell you very clearly that's not going to happen because... You know, yeah, some of the college kids are gone, but I've still got a handful. I've got a lot of basketball guys that may not be playing a meaningful game until January, February. I don't even know. Like, 
G League level guys. I don't know when they're going to start. Overseas guys, um, every overseas uh, country is a little bit different with regards to how they're ramping things back up. So I don't really know how that's going to happen. I mean, it's conceivable. I could have started coaching in mid-April with Glenn, getting him ramped back up, and I could easily go into, I don't even know, December, January, February. Like, I just don't know. Um, so it'll be interesting to see just kind of how the next couple months pan out. Um, I'm excited because um, I've been trying to coordinate with Bill more, um, just trying to get a better understanding of what he's seeing when they're on the table, always trying to create craft just a little bit better program. I think that's what you have to do the longer you do this. You know, if you're just squat, bench, deadlift, everybody for 20 years, that program's going to get kind of old. But if you're constantly trying to better understand movement as a whole, um, the principles behind movement, why people move the way that they do, trying to craft that perfect program or give them that perfect cue to get them moving and shaking the way that you want. I think that's what keeps us excited and engaged. And that's kind of where I'm at now because, you know, I got a couple guys that are right on the cusp. Guys that were on two ways that could potentially be in the NBA. Guys that were in the G League that could be on two ways. Um, I got some young pre-draft guys that are going to be you know, in the NBA or they're going to be playing overseas for their first competitive year. So just really excited about the potential opportunity for them and then just the opportunity for me to continue to grow and evolve as a coach. So pretty jazzed about that. And then last but not least, if you hear that, it's my daughter's iPad because my workstation is also her <laughs> workstation for school. And then last but not least, got the Complete Coach relaunch coming up in just a few short weeks. So excited to push that back out there. Um, obviously, you've got all of the original Complete Coach material. After the first launch, I added like 12 hours of seminar level content where it was much more interactive and where I could go in and have five or six different body types and kind of on the fly figure out, okay, how does this person move? What squat variation would I give them? What coaching cues would I give them? So I think that really took it to another level. And then with this newest update that's coming out in September, I'm adding all of the assessment materials. And I tried to do a really good job of blending it where you have enough stuff to do an online assessment and you have enough stuff to do an offline assessment. So depending on what environment you're in, or maybe you're in this new like hybrid environment that Pat Rigsby or Jonathan Goodman have talked about. If you're in a hybrid environment, you could use a little bit of both. So I'm really excited to push that out there because the goal with the assessment portion is to help you connect the dots. Like literally step by step, we talk about the assessment. How does the assessment drive the program? Once you've got the program, how does the program drive the cues that you use? And then from there, you know, if the program doesn't work or you're coaching somebody, it's not working the way that you would like, they're not moving the way uh, that you would like, hey, here's progressions and regressions. So kind of on the fly, you can change things up and get people moving the way that you want. So very excited to push that back out there. If you're not already kind of on board with this, go to completecoachcertification.com. Check it out. If you get on the insiders list, it'll give you the chance to save $200, which if you ask me is a pretty sweet deal because I think with this new round of updates, we're going to be over well over 20 hours of content. So I think it's pretty solid and I definitely think it'll make a difference for you. So with that being said, I am going to shut up. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to jump into this awesome show with my guy, Dr. Matt Jordan.
It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in our industry. So if this sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better trainer or coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the certification is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will open twice per year for a limited time only. If you're interested in learning more, my next certification will launch in September. And if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 off the standard price when it opens. To get on the insiders list, head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for our launch emails that'll be coming very soon. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Dr. Matt Jordan bridges the gap between science and coaching. He is a sought-after presenter on return to sport after injury, training program designed for elite athletes, and creating interdisciplinary, high-performance practitioner teams. Matt's PhD research focused on return to sport neuromuscular monitoring for athletes with ACL injury, so it only makes sense that we take a deep dive into that topic here. So in this show, Matt and I talk about his legend of a first mentor, Charles Poliquin, the merits of eccentric strength training, his approach to movement assessment, the biggest mistakes he's seeing in ACL rehab, and why it's so critical to start rehab conversations by talking about the data first and not subjective opinions. This was an awesome episode, and I really think you're going to love it. Now, real quick, something happened with Zoom when Matt started talking initially in the show, so if it feels like we're jumping in here, I apologize. I'm not sure what happened, but I promise you only missed like five seconds of audio, basically me asking him who he is, and then he jumps right into his bio. So enough for me. Let's do this. I've been in that uh, realm of helping Olympic athletes get to the podium. You know, always say healthy and safe is a, a big focus of mine right now is getting athletes back to sport after injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, strength coach, you know, worked through four Olympic cycles with lots of Canadian Olympians, but all Olympians from all kinds of countries, actually, um, and, and uh, professional athletes. And then, um, you know, like, kind of get flat you know I was getting a little bit stir crazy I've always like considered myself um and I and I say this the second part as a coach scientist so I've been um very much um you know um uh, always been involved in scientific research and so the other uh, side of the equation is in uh, 2010 I went back and uh did a PhD in medical science and, and the big focus of my my research was um developing a, a dual force plate system to look at functional asymmetries and jumping. Sure. And uh the main focal point there was to develop 
better testing for athletes as they come back after ACL injuries. And anybody who's up in that research would know that some of the current research coming out, you know, looking at a lot of the functional field tests that we use, like, you know, triple hop for distance or single leg hop for distance, that they really don't appear to be overly predictive or sensitive towards people who go on to get hurt again. In fact, people often who pass that test better uh, end up uh, being the ones who suffer re-injury. So the impetus Mm. behind my PhD work was, um, was that. And where, where I land today is I'm the director of sports science at the Canadian Sport Institute, Calgary. It's one of Canada's Olympic training centers. Um, I'm an adjunct professor at the university. So I do, I've got four or five graduate students doing research in the area of helping, helping athletes after ACL injury, get back to sport healthy and safe. Um, working with some still programming and working with a handful of athletes here and there, because that's where my passion is. And, uh, and then in the, on the side, I've got my, my online consulting and coaching business where I'm actually helping coaches and, uh, and fitness, fitness coaches, strength coaches, uh, sports scientists, uh, offering online education for them. So it's a uh, multifaceted and I'm a dad and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a husband. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So yeah, really, really, yeah, there's not a lot going on there, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So tell me what led you to the world of physical preparation? Like how did you get started in this whole world? No, it, I I was uh, I was a competitive athlete myself. I grew up uh, playing hockey and and uh, swimming competitively as a as a as a you know uh, I would say in my teens, and uh, kind of fell out of love with with hockey just given you know a variety of things. And funny, I landed in a sport. Uh, I mean, I don't know how um, how familiar. I'm sure most of your audience will will know this sport, but uh, speed skating, which is an Olympic sport. Um, and I also was, you know, doing triathlon and I, I, I sort of got this, um, this opportunity to move to Calgary to, uh, train at the Olympic training center. And to be honest with you, I was a pretty scrubby athlete. I, I was a very average, um, maybe a little better than average, but not much more. And, um, I met a guy named Charles Pollockin and for your listeners, who know, Charles, like Charles was a, a Canadian strength coach. He passed away a couple of years ago, but sort of a pioneer in many different ways. And so Charles was the strength coach at the Olympic Training Center. And uh, I always had a bug for the weight room, um, even when I was a kid. And I met Charles. And next thing you know, I was, I'd never even thought about a career as a strength conditioning coach. And, and Charles really opened up that, that, that career path for me. And, you know, I kind of went under him. He was one of my first mentors and, and, and um, gave me an opportunity to kind of learn and get in the field. And that's how I started off. And uh, when Charles moved on, it kind of opened up a little bit of a gap at our training center. And I, I stepped in there as a 25 year old uh, master's of science student in kinesiology and uh, moonlighting in the weekends as a hospital security guard and literally did the strength and conditioning and physical preparation stuff for free. Oh, wow. As a, as a, yeah, it was back in the day, right? Like yeah. you, you didn't, you didn't, you weren't going to pay your bills doing that. So I, uh, yeah, that's how I started off. Man, not a bad first mentor either. Oh yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, know? Charles, you know, like Charles, like for people who don't know Charles, like, you know, the persona that you saw as, as, uh, I would say in the past five to 10 years, which was really much appealing, much more towards like, I would say pop culture training, uh, but but you would always see in the thread of Charles's writing and, and how he'd speak that the guy had a tremendous depth of knowledge. And what people don't know about Charles is that when Charles was coming up through the ranks in Canada himself, he realized that he needed better um, better mentorship himself. So he planted himself in Europe, in Germany, actually. He learned German and he actually learned from 
Um, some at, at the time in the eighties, some of the leading East German physiologists and strength coaches and, 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 you know, the guy's very well read. Um, and I would, I would say, you know, he was, he gave me really great advice and, and, um, you know, I, I, I still use it to this day. That's awesome, man. So talk to me about that career path though, from 25 years old and kind of moonlighting to pay the bills, but you know, you've got this gig at the Olympic training center to where you're at now. So like fill in those gaps. So people understand the career path that you've been on. Yeah. I mean, you know, initially like, and I, and I owe this to Charles, right? Like Charles piece of advice were, you know, um, number one, uh, you got to look the part. And mm-hmm. I always kind of laugh at that because Charles, you know, to, 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 to the very end there was, he definitely looked the part, but I mean, I think what he was saying is you got to have a passion for the, for the game yourself, right? Yep. Physical preparation and strength and training and all those things, which I did. Um, you know, he always told me to read lots and, um, and, and he was interesting cause he never, you know, at the time, you know, he pointed me towards scientific journals. Like what Charles did was he kind of pushed me towards, um, you know, essentially for the books he'd be writing, he'd push me to the library to go photocopy journal articles for him at the time. Again, not exactly right. getting this online. I was right before the internet came out, uh, really strongly for us to be able to access that information. So I would get that stuff for him. And, and then I exposed to this, I was exposed to the science of it. Yeah. And the last piece that he always told me is don't hurt your athletes. And, um, I was like, there you go. Three, three things to live by. Right. But as I was going along, you know, I realized that, you know, I, I definitely had a passion for the science side. And so as I was kind of graduating from my undergraduate degree, um, I got into a master's of science in exercise and muscle physiology. And, uh, I met a, I met a guy along the way there, um, uh, a guy named Walter Herzog, who's, uh, he's truly a world leading biomechanist, uh, doing some fundamental research in how basically muscle tissue works, uh, the biomechanics of muscles, um, and, 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 um, and, and sort of like furthering our understanding on the theory of muscle contraction. But, you know, Walter was on my thesis committee and, you know, Walter, Walter is this scientist that, you know, he's a rare guy, right? He was a coach himself and he got into science and he, you know, he, he is now doing, you know, really, really amazing stuff. And so as a mentor with Charles or sorry, with, with uh, Walter, I just, you know, I, I got into the masters of science and I just sort of evolved as this, you know, dual interest, you know, I, so I kind of kept myself right at that coal face. And, you know, at that point, it's now 2002 and I'm young and I go to my first Olympics as a strength coach. And I had the pleasure of having Stu McMillan and, um, you know, Matt Price and Scott Ma, a bunch of guys, Canadian guys who were all at the training center with me in this little dungeon of an office. And we spent the next decade just grinding out, you know, working with athletes, traveling to the Olympics. Like I always say, Stu and I would go to every single Olympics together. We'd always stay outside of the village and we'd, you know, hang out while all of our athletes were competing and doing stuff. And, um, you know, it was really one of the best times of my career. It was a full decade and a, a bit of just like immersion with my friends and my colleagues in this world of building out knowledge and building out our, uh, our philosophies and, 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 and learning from each other. Yep. And, uh, that was it, man. It's my career trajectory. And, and the pivot to get back into the PhD was late in life. Um, it was after, to be honest with you personally, I, I, I was, uh, I went through a divorce. I was in my early thirties. I had a kid who was now a year old. And I was like, I gotta do something different. And I bit the bullet. I went back, I did a PhD. I just stopped the cobwebs and, and, um, it was one of the best things I ever did. And that's, you know, that leads me to where I am today, which is, you know, just kind of blended focus. Like I've got lots of different things happening, but they all kind of link and connect. And, uh, I love it. 
That's awesome, man. So it sounds like we're similar age. And I just remember when I was getting started, you know, 20 plus years ago, I thought like barbell strength was it, right? Like if you were getting somebody strong in the gym, that was the key that was going to help take their performance to the next level. And I think nowadays we know that's just not the case. There's a lot more to it than that. And I know that's something that you're very passionate about. So could you talk to us a little bit about how you got focused on eccentric training and why it's such an important piece of the puzzle? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that you know, like you, I I was uh, de working with these um, these Olympians, and and I'm talking, you know, at our training center back in the day, we would have, it was actually a multinational training center, and it's kind of hard to believe, but we would have training with our Canadian national team, we would have Chinese national team athletes, we would have Americans, we'd have Germans. We'd have Norwegians. And so you can imagine in this training group, you're looking at this diverse group of athletes that all have different physical preparation histories, right? So coming from China, it's amazing. The athletes were really different than an athlete coming from Germany. And that athlete was really different than an athlete coming from Canada or the US. And to your point, I started to realize as a strength coach that you know, my job was to add this, this, this contribute this knowledge base and this one little piece of the puzzle to this overall picture of athletic development and expression of physical performance in whichever sport it was alpine skiing, speed skating, cross country skiing, whatever sport I was working with. And so really early on, I started to see that how an athlete solves problems on the field or on the ice um, is really dependent on, on their history. And so you know, um, I had to figure out, you know, what were the combination of things that was going to make that athlete great and, and, you know, set them up for success. And to that point, I started to realize the athletes for whom, you know, heavy maximal strength training was absolutely essential and athletes for whom, um, you know, more of a, a, a plyometric or high rate of force development program was essential and athletes for whom they just needed, you know, just a small amount of that stuff, but really, yeah. It was about doing the sport and, and other ways to express um, express their physical uh, capacities. Like that's what they needed to develop. And so really at that point in time, I, I started very early on to know that there was not just a single way to do it. And as I developed through that, that era, you know, constantly trying to figure out ways to measure and to, um, to better better quantify what was happening i mean let's face it at the end of the day we train our athletes and i mean i'm generalizing here but you know you apply force into the ground so that you can move your center of mass around effectively and when i acquired that dual force plate system uh to be honest with you it was a, a a game changer in terms of my ability to start to get under the hood in terms of how athletes were applying force and organizing to be able to express their capacities in, in, in terms of, you know, these, these abilities. And certainly one of the things that became increasingly evident to me was the ability for athletes to put on the brakes, decelerate all of these words that we use, but that eccentric deceleration movement where athletes are, you know, reversing the downward acceleration of their body center of mass to be able to return, you know, and, 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 and push off the ground. It was, you know, increasingly evident to me that that was a critical piece of the puzzle for how athletes express their physical capacities, like maximal strength and rate of force development in on the field of play. And so I was highly interested in that at that point. And then um, working with a ton of athletes with ACL injuries, I mean, 
one sport I work with a ton is alpine ski racing. And, and these athletes are by nature of their sport exposed to very, very high eccentric loads. It's con like in a ski racing, you don't, um, you don't, it's the potential energy of you coming down the mountain. That's giving you your, your, your speed. And you're yeah. actually just controlling it and managing it by putting the brakes on the right way right. so that you can carry that momentum down the hill. And, you know, watching these athletes perform and watching how these athletes expressed on ground because of the virtue of like what they've done for their whole lives, it really started to spark my interest in saying like, this is the sport where these athletes are almost exclusively exposed to high eccentric loading. Yep. And, and so, and then I could watch their physical capacities compared to other athletes and I could start to see what that was doing to their abilities. And yeah, I just realized that there was a huge amount of potential to unlock um, because of the nature of, of, um, of eccentric muscle actions, how, how force is controlled as muscles lengthen, as muscles lengthen the training, in, the, the training, um, uh, uh, what potency of, of eccentric training, yeah. um, and also just overall why, why it relates back to performance. So, um, you know, when, where, where we are today is it's a big focus focal point for us, but moving beyond just high force eccentric uh, a strength. It's now the ability to make force fast in those braking movements and trying to understand that more effectively. Um, and to understand how that relates to performance, that's a big area of focus for us, uh, research wise. And, um, yeah, from training standpoint, you know, that's, that's always, a always one of the parameters I'm monitoring and, 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 and tracking over time as part of my whole sort of profiling approach for, for athlete performance. Um, it's a key, absolute key. I love it. So luckily our mutual fin friend, Matei Hasavar, basically, you know, put me on to, uh, to, to getting you on the show and you're somebody I followed anyways, but he said, I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you more about your assessment process. So I would love to hear, I mean, obviously you don't have to give us the whole thing because I'm sure it's quite extensive, but maybe some of the highlights, what are some of the big things you're focusing on when a new athlete comes to you and wants to use your programming to get better? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, front first and foremost, you know, uh, and I learned this from Dan Path, but I, I, uh, I would say that your best movement screen, and I, and I use screening and quote, scare quotes because I'm not really screening for anything, you know, like a, uh, a cardiovascular screen for like risk factors for a cardiovascular disease um, is sort of implying that what you're looking at is sort of predictive of your illness or right. you know disease potential, I guess. Um, you know, movement screens. I mean, let's be honest, we're not screening for anything. I think the evidence is pretty weak that it's necessarily associated with injury, but we're all starting there. Right. Um, so, you know, Dan would always be your best movement screen, or I'm, I'm going to use the term movement assessment moving forward here is your best movement assessment is getting people on the track and doing a, a good warm up. And so, you know, I would always start there, to be honest with you, Mike. And, and um, where my I've evolved today is um, I'm, I'm working closely with a wearable company that, um, the company's called Plantiga and they're out of Vancouver and essentially they're making an intelligent insole. So you put oh, wow. an IMU inside of an insole. Um, and this is what the IMUs actually look like. They're little, uh, little pods that stick under your, your, your foot in an insole and they're using uh, machine learning. So it's an artificial intelligence approach to being able to extract ins insights to how people move. Right. And so that's become a kind of a starting point, you know, get a, get them, get them uh, doing a walk test, a run test, a jump test, a uh, change of direction uh, test, looking at, you know, um, uh, various track-based competencies. Um, from there, that usually triages me into a more detailed MSK assessment, which 
you know, I, I, I am, I'm kind of old school, right? I go through, you know, passive range of motion, active range of motion, um, you know, in a, in a very uh, qualitative sense, uh, some, some, some really basic uh, um, um, joint by joint muscle testing. And I know that yep. that some of your listeners might be like, oh, that's, that's not like, that's, that is old school. But the reason I do that, um, Mike, is that I found on numerous bases, especially with athletes who are injured, that if you have a joint that is really at a deficit um, in terms of strength, it absolutely shapes how you move. And sure. so what we'll see is that, you know, let's take an extreme example. And this is why, you know, I know it sounds crazy, but I'll, I'll teach my strength coaches my, and my, my students that, you know, doing a leg extension can be functional. And they're always like, yeah, but leg extension, like that's <laughs> right. like, but I'm like, no, it, it can be absolutely functional. Cause if you have an athlete and I'll take an extreme example of an athlete with an ACL injury, who's got a, you know, a 25% deficit in knee extensor strength because of their injury and it's compensating by using their hip and their ankle. So they perform pretty well, but their, right. their movement is shaped by that joint deficit, right? We need yep. to know that. And yep. when we increase the availability of the knee joint, i.e. we get them stronger and we close that gap, it opens up the, the, it opens up their, their, their movement strategies to be able to, um, to be able to organize themselves to express movement um, with greater bandwidth, right? So I, yep. I'm always very much a believer in looking for those uh, clues. And really, it's like trying to find where those big red flags are. So that's, that's why I do that. And increasingly, we're actually measuring that stuff. So whether it's quadricep and hamstring, uh, uh, isometric strength and rate of force development, or we've got a new little uh, dynamometer that we've developed for like 150 bucks that can measure hip strength. Oh, cool. Um, we're, 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 we're doing that uh, part of our assessment. And then the, the last part is putting, uh, typically putting people through uh, a battery of tests on our dual force plate system. And that's aimed at breaking out, just like we're talking about their eccentric movement versus concentric movement versus landing ability. And looking that looking at that from the perspective of how are they right to left? How yeah. are they compared to what they need to have to express um, movements in their in their in their um, in the sport or position, whatever 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 that might be. And so that case, we're using normative data, and um, and specifically, um, you know, I would say the strategy of how they do it. So when you look at a forced time curve, you can you can extract the strategy that the person's using to put the brakes on, push off the ground and land. Let's use those in general terms. Yeah. Uh, but from there, that then allows me to sort of shape my strategy for what I'm going to target in on my programming. And uh, that is the tee up. And then I, you know, from there, start with my programming uh, uh, design and, and, and really uh, using that information to kind of tailor in on what that person needs to, to, to do. I love it. I so, love it. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things that, that I think is interesting too, and I think you did a great job of highlighting it there is I think the longer you do this, the less biased we are with regards to whatever means or methods we use, right? So like you just use a leg extension. And I know for a fact, when I was 22, I thought a leg extension was a dumb exercise, yeah, right? Like, what, like yeah. who sits down and, you know, extends their knee, but you just yeah. gave, gave a great example of it, right? And I think that's one of the things the longer you do this, the more you realize it's not so much the tool, it's the application of the tool. 100%. And knowing when to use it, right? So you've got this massive toolbox with a thousand tools. It's just about knowing when to use the right tool for the right job. Sure. And Agreed. I think, and go ahead. I, I, I agree. And, and, and what I would say is that that is the, 
you know, Mike, I always say that every training program is like a mini science experiment. So yes. you gather all that information. So I've just kind of gave like a five minute Coles notes view of from warm up on the track to MSK assessment to all the strength and power, um, you know, diagnostics. I'm using that in scare quote because we're not diagnosing yeah. anything, but you know right. what I mean? I know what you mean. Collected all that information. Now I've got a hunch. I always say it's like Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to the scene of the crime, you know, using my magnifying glass and trying to trying to figure out the clues which allow me to arrive at a plausible explanation for what I need to do. And yep. that's a hunch. That's a hypothesis. Like I, I start there and I design a program and that program is meant to elicit a response. Right. Yep. And I would just go back and say that, you know, I, I get, I get it wrong all the time, but because I'm monitoring this stuff, as I move through three to four weeks and I test again, you know, if I don't see things changing the way I expect them to change, you know, the first thing I've got to look at is, well, maybe my programming's not, yeah, maybe something's missing, right? And right. so to your point, it's exactly it. Like you've got this toolbox and then we're using a, an investigative scientific approach to, to determine is the application of tools that we're using here actually effective at changing what we want to change. And, you know, to that end, Mike, like I might, you know, I might have uh, to go back to the old leg extension. Like, you know, the reason I stumbled on that is because I found that no matter what I was doing with all the other conventional training that we would do, the athletes were compensating. And I'm talking specifically here, athletes with an ACL injury, they were compensating so much and I could not see it with my eye, but they were compensating so much that they would just exacerbate that hip dominant pattern. Yep. And so I bring them back in, I would test them up and be like, there's still freaking 25% different side to side. So my programming is not changing a damn thing here. Right. And that's where you'd be like, Hey, help, let's throw them on a leg extension. We're going to do this at the end of their program. We're going to do, you know, three or four sets, uh, hypertrophy oriented loading parameters, finish off, maybe sometimes blood flow restriction as a, as an adjunct yeah. there. And, um, let's see what happens. And when you do that enough, right, you start to build up enough of a, a rationale for being like, you know what? That actually is pretty effective because it's actually right. changed their force profile. It's right. changed their, their knee extension RFD capabilities. And we can actually see them self-organizing now on the field of play because we're using the IMU system to measure the movement quality. We can actually see that it's changing how they are running, changing direction and, and doing stuff in a more functional way. And that to me is, you know, back to your point is, you know, you don't want to bias yourself one way or the other. And, and, you know, full circle working with those athletes from all these different countries, I needed a big toolbox because some, you know, sometimes certain things would work really well with one type of athlete and would be horrible with another. And, yeah. and I just needed to be flexible in my thinking so that, you know, I fit to them. They're not trying to fit them to my paradigm. Yeah. Huge, that's a huge issue with like in our, in our day to day, more and more and more I see coaches trying, they've got a mental construct for what it looks like to move, a mental construct for what training looks like. Yep. And because they've got that hammer, everything looks like a nail and they have to, they treat everybody with the same system. And, um, you know, I would just say that, you know, your refinement, your ability to refine your approach. And I'm not saying like throw things out and be all over right. the map, but refine your approach and use your tools effectively. That's the key. Yeah, that's the key. Yeah, that's huge, man. Okay, so let's kind of jump in on this topic. What originally got you interested in the whole ACL rehab and return to play? Was there like a specific athlete? Or was it a series of athletes? Like what got you excited about that? 
Well, I mean, I'll, I'll uh, very specifically 2002, um, just after the Salt Lake Olympics, and I was working with an athlete who um, uh, had an ACL injury, had an ACL reconstruction, young athlete, um, alpine skier. And uh, I was her primary point person for her strength and conditioning component of a rehab. And yeah. it was, it was bad, man. Like we, we just didn't know at the time, like the physio would do their work. You know, I never actually really talked to the physio. The surgeon had done the surgery, but I never talked to the surgeon. So I just kind of, you know, I just got the athletes show up at the gym at two o'clock and I would be like, okay, let's do some, let's do some strength training. And right. You know, I, I think I did the best I could. And I would argue if I went back and looked at those programs, you know, there was nothing in there where you'd be like, oh, dude, you shouldn't do that with that person. Like that could have really hurt them. Like I was very, um, you know, all those boxes were checked where it was reasonable. Right. Yeah. But that poor athlete got back on the snow and very, you know, predictably, like our research shows, we published on this within 14 months, she suffers a contralateral ACL injury. She blows out her other knee. Mm. And I was like, yeah you no know, expletive like <laughs> like yes. what did i what did i miss what did i do and i remember just feeling this incredible weight of like oh god and and, and honestly at the time it was a statistical reality like i talked to people to be like yeah man it happens and you know nothing right. you can do like it was almost accepted and so you can imagine i'm 25 years old that's my first experience and i go on a hiatus from alpine in that that zone and in 2010 i get back with the team so i'm back with alpine now yep women's program i'm i'm now hopefully eight years wiser and you know and lo and behold what do we got we've got half the team with acl injuries coming back after something right oh my and gosh yeah and so it's imagine a team of 10 and it's statistical like if you look at it if you, you know 50 percent of elite alpine skiers it's a, a crazy statistic and it's just per prevalence right 50% of elite skiers will have an ACL injury at some point. They kind of see it like getting their wisdom teeth pulled, like everyone right. gets one. And, you know, I'm looking at this team of women that are, you know, in their young, they're, they're in their early twenties and half of them are blown up and coming back. And I was like, I am not making the same mistake. I'm not doing it. Like, I'm not right. just throwing this. I'm not just like winging this. And I had been so lucky to stumble on, um, you know, a conference in 08 in uh, Colorado Springs. And I met Per Agard, who was also part of my PhD. And Per presented this brilliant hour on how the vertical jump can be used with injured people, ACL injured people, elderly athletes. And he was talking about all the unique nuanced assessment that you can use with, with a force plate to look at how people apply force. So we're not right. just caring about how high you jump. We're looking at how you apply force in this to understand your capacities. Yep. And he presented some really cool data on using a double force plate system. And I, and I was just like, oh, that's interesting. So now in 2010, I'm back with the women. I've got my dual force plate system and I'd already been using it with injured athletes. And I was like, this is perfect. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this to help make decisions. And I would bring them in and I would test them and have them squat and jump. And I would look at their symmetry and, honestly mike it just evolved from there and i just right around that that juncture of 2011 i was like you know a feeling super flat in my career b always wanted to do a phd c i found something that i really cared about which was helping athletes because i freaking been through that before where i felt like i'd i'd like let the athlete down by not 
having done enough with their rehab. Yep. D, I saw a gap in, in how we practice because you don't want to have the physio do their thing, the doctor does their thing, strength coach exactly. does theirs, and we're all disconnected. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is I'm gonna I'm gonna focus my PhD on this. And it was just becoming it was it was like that heartstring that was pulled early in my career, combined with the opening of insights that I was gaining from this and, and the and the interest in getting more mentorship and growth myself. And that was it. I dove into it and and I spent the next you know, the next chunk of time working with those athletes, getting them back, doing the research. And, and, you know, I throw this out because I think it's, it's probably a statistical anomaly, but you know, at the time it was very funny. And I'm cautiously saying this right now with anecdotes and, and honestly, this could just be luck of the draw. Right. Uh, but what, what I found is at that time, the Alpine program was actually investing more than ever money into physical preparation because the person at the helm said, we have had too many injuries. That's actually why the Alpine team got shut out at the Vancouver Olympics is they had tons of athletes go down with injuries. And at the time, my co-counterpart was Matt Price. And we just said, we got to do things better and we got to do things with science. So we began measuring rate of force development, hamstring, quadriceps looking at um, our asymmetries with the force plates. Yep. And we began training athletes with that in mind, with the goal of making them resilient against ACL injuries. So understanding the mechanisms and preparing their bodies so that when they're put in those positions where they're going to be exposed to an injury event, like understanding that mechanism, we want them to be able to express force rapidly to be able to protect the joint and, and hopefully safeguard against injury. And we went through an era there from 2012, when I, when I really kind of got into my PhD work, all the way up till 2015 with not a single ACL injury wow. on the women's program. And honestly, statistically, we expect to have, if we have a team of 20 athletes, we expect at least a couple of ACL injuries a year, right? Like that's the right. statistical reality. We didn't have a single ACL injury on the women's side and we had one on the men's side and it was actually really shitty for my PhD because I needed <laughs> subjects and I was like, Oh my God, no one's getting hurt. Right. But you know, but let's face it, like was really good. Um, and then in 2015 um, we had a change and we started to see a drop off in the investment in physical preparation. And uh, from 2015 and on, um, especially with our young athletes coming out of the, you know, out of the provinces and also what we were seeing with, just sort of that development level where we really lost that robust physical preparation model. Um, we were right back. So we went right back to having this, the classic two to three ACL injuries every single year. Mm. Um, and, and I guess at the end of the day, I guess my point here is that um, the, the stuff that we do and, and, you know, how, you know, can we impact the athlete positively by using science and being more tailored with our prescription of exercise to make them resilient against, against injury. Haven't used the word prediction, haven't used, can we predict this to do right. that? No, if I identify a problem by my testing with my methods and I find something that I can address through physical preparation that's gonna help make you more resilient, can we move the needle and hopefully help make those athletes more resilient against an injury? I'm not saying prevent every injury. I think the answer to that question is yes. And I think the answer to that is that, um, you know, the impact of that is obviously that that's what we're here to do, right? Like we're not going right. to prevent every single injury, but we're, we're looking to make those athletes more robust, more resilient, better physically prepared. Um, and, and, um, I think at the end of the day, my experience with this whole thing, and we're still super passionate about the work we're doing. I've got some great graduate students, but it's 
it's opened up a whole world of, of just like meaningful work every single day. Like that's, I used to care about getting athletes on the podium and that's how I was like measuring my success was, could I assist this athlete in their journey? Um, but now, you know, the the pivot has changed and now it's all about helping these athletes get back to, back to health first, most importantly, back to sport and then eventually back to performance, um, after injury and, and, um, and, and, you know, it's a, a different focus, but it's, uh, it's become a huge passion. So yeah. I love it. I love it. So obviously this is a huge topic and it's something you've spent, I mean, at least the last 10 years of your life very focused on, but what are some of the best indicators or KPIs to determine if someone will be successful coming back from an ACL tear? You know, right now, uh, you know, Mike, I think our, our evidence on this scientific evidence is um, pretty low, right? Okay. So when you look at the peer, peer-reviewed science, the, the studies that have looked at this, um, a lot of the functional tests that we see uh, being deployed um, and I'm talking specifically where you measure single leg hop for distance, triple hop, these sorts of things. What we're finding is that, um, what we're seeing is that they, they seem to have a relatively low association, like successful passing of those tests have a really low association with injury yeah, and uh, or risk of re-injury. And, um, you know, from that work, what appears to be the case is that, um, you know, um, a really simple metric like knee quadricep strength being a key, right? Yep. Um, one of my good friends from uh, um, from uh, Ireland, Enda King, who's a, a PhD, PhD physiotherapist who's published some great work on this as well, um, clearly showing that the strategy that people deploy, yep. especially right while changing direction, is a key. Yep. But ultimately, you know, I'll be honest, like, and I had this conversation with Enda because we brought Enda in to give a talk to our, to our, our, we have a program in, at our institute called the uh, R2P code, which return to performance code, which is our new program we're launching to test athletes and monitor them after injury and help them get back. And I was talking to Enda because we brought him in to talk to our, our basically, you know, a big broad group of people. And, and Enda was just, I was like, so what do you, where are you at? And then he's like, no, Matt, every injury is unique. And the goal is to try to use the testing methodologies to be able to pinpoint what the athlete is hiding. And to that end, when the question gets asked on a statistical sense, what we know is we've got to look at quadriceps strength. We've got to make sure that the injured limb is within a, a good threshold of the non-injured limb, like usually less than 10%, but let's just say less than 5%. Yep. Importantly, both limbs are still strong because what we often see, and I, we just published a case study on this in Frontiers, on an alpine skier who got her symmetry back as she recovered, but the symmetry came back because as the non-injured or as the injured limb was getting stronger, the non-injured limb was actually mm. getting weaker. So at 18 months, she's symmetrical. So if right. all you were looking at was limb symmetry, you'd be like, yeah, but she's got two weak limbs now. So, right. you know, importantly, you're symmetrical, but you're strong. Right. Um, and that your movement strategies are not movement strategies that are exposing you to really big, you know, internal tibial internal rotational loads and, and let's just say um, 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 uh, loads that are going to be sh- causing those shear forces through the knee joint. Yes. And yep. I think at the end of the day, if you, if you kind of take those two, three things as a statistical starting point, yep. 
um, on an N equal one basis, which is what coaches care about. I would just say that to answer your question specifically is you start there with your global themes, but then as you assess, you need to know that you're now investigating and looking for, you know, what is that athlete hiding from you? And right. um, I think to that end is, you know, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example, Mike, just uh, really specifically um, working with an athlete this past year and a half. Awesome, awesome guy. Like I, I really have come to respect this guy. He's, he went through a very disastrous knee injury, um, you know, essentially a full knee, knee dislocation. Mm. Um, and it was amazing watching this guy come back and he, he, he was, he was faster at his recovery than anybody we've ever seen with a full knee dislocation. It was unbelievable. Um, and I can remember in the middle of the summer and he's now at this point about 13 months post-surgery, I think at the time he sets a personal best in the power clean. Like he's doing amazingly well, right. it's, 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 but what he was hiding from us was his eccentric deceleration abilities with load was where he was struggling. So you, he looked great when he, you know, when he, you know, pushed into the ground, popped that load, yeah. but actually what we weren't seeing, and we could only see this by our loaded jump protocol that we do in our strength lab. When we combined it with high speed video and the EMG, and we looked at the ground reaction forces, it was really clear that when he put the brakes on with extra load, that's where he was struggling. Mm, and so yeah. we were able to tailor the program, you know, exactly to fix those, address those gaps, you know, Another example might be an athlete who's really struggling with quadriceps art rate of force development ability or, or quadriceps strength. You know, if we see that, we address that gap. So yeah, I, get, I think it's, I think every project is unique and, and it just goes to show you that it's hard to, you know, you can start with the sort of normal norm, normative data and the statistical expectation of where to look, but then you got to really just get into each person as a N equal one case study and uncover what's there. Yeah, I love that, man. So I'm a little bit scared to ask this, but you've probably seen a lot of knees and a lot of knee injuries over the years. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen when it comes to people doing ACL rehab? I mean, I, I would say the number one biggest mistake is that people, it's the same question that we started off, you know, our, our, our interview, our, our, our discussion here today on. It's like, you apply a preconceived notion of what this is supposed to, supposed to look like. And when you go in with a preconceived notion of what you, you think it should look like, you really start to see what you want to see. And, you know, I, I work, you know, I can, I can recall a conversation with an individual where we were discussing an athlete and they said, well, Hey, here's my timeline. And on my timeline, I've got them at six months where I start my plyometric training. And at this month I start this. And I was like, how, like, what are your metrics to graduate that person on to the next step? Because yes. it's not six months. It's that the person ready to move on to the competency. And, you know, I think that's the biggest mistake that I see is that people overlook that, it's not time. Like time is important for healing. I'm not sure. saying that there's not a healing process Understood. that's happening. I think we all understand that. And you've got to, that's where, you know, we rely so heavily on a, on a team now. Like it's not, it's not like, well, the surgeon did their work and the physio did theirs and I'm going to do mine. Like we make a team around the athlete and we are all communicating. So timelines come in because the surgeons are like, Hey, you know, I'm going to need this sort of timeline for this person to heal. But once we get through that, you know, the, the ability to make it 
um, a milestone approach where people graduate onto the next step as they pass the current step. Yep. Um, that's what I see people missing and, and where, where it goes awry is number one, they're not working as a team. They're working as a bunch of individual practitioners, each doing their own thing. Well, I take care of strength. Well, you take care of physio. Well, you take care of the medicine. Like right. we don't talk to each other, which is a huge wasted opportunity because we can learn so much from each other. Um, they're, they're not using the milestone approach and what they're doing is they're rolling the dice. So when it comes to that time where it's like, okay, well, we're about nine or 10 months now or eight months post-surgery. I don't know. I think we should just give it a go and see how it, see how it works here. And they sort of roll the dice and hope that the athlete does okay. Right. Um, and, and then if the person gets hurt, um, and this is the last part of where I see people making mistakes is they don't really debrief their mistakes, right? They don't, they didn't use a data-driven approach to begin with. They were just kind of going off their guts and their feels. But then when, the, when a mistake happens and it doesn't go according to expectation, and let's say somebody gets hurt or has a setback, they kind of just say, well, I guess it's just how, what happens, right? And right. I, recall reading a, I recall reading a paper on evidence-based medicine and how early medical practitioners practiced. And it's really interesting to note that if you came to see me as a sick patient, and this is, you know, going back a couple hundred years, and let's say I gave you a treatment yep. and, and you, and you died. Um, I would be like, well, Mike, I guess you were just untreatable. Like, I guess you just had something that my treatment couldn't work for you. And, right. you know, meanwhile, I was freaking, you know, making you drink a pint of seawater water if you had vitamin C deficiency, you know, and it was like, <laughs> well, I guess, I guess it was you, not me. And, and, you know, where we are today is understanding that there's a huge power in using science and evidence and, and data-driven decision-making, and there's a huge power in working as a team. And there's a huge power to be gained that every time we go through this process, there's something to be learned. And um, you can't learn by just sitting down and having a conversation about what you think and what you feel, you know? Yeah. Great. Yeah. You feel it's going great. That's, that's how every conversation starts out about an athlete who's in rehab. How do you think it's going? well, we think it's going great. You know, we think he's doing awesome and, you know, he's really excited and he's motivated and I'm, I feel really good about it. And then, you know, it's like someone puts a data point on, Hey, guess what? He's still 29% different side to side at single leg jump height. Oh shit. Really? <laughs> yeah. 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 Like that doesn't that just change your, 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 your mindset. And, and I'll, 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 uh, I will definitely, um, um, acknowledge my good friend, Dustin Adams down at the USOC start every single conversation with your ACL rehabs with data. Don't start with how you feel and how you yeah. think it's going. Don't start with what your gut's telling you and your timelines. Start with the data. Show me some data. And then let's start talking about what you think about it. Um, but data should start all those conversations. And you, if you don't have a team at the table, it's going to be super tough to make this, make this good. And, you know, I have, I'd, I'd be remiss not to mention that we, you know, we're really lucky. We, we have a mental performance consultant, a nutritionist on board. You know, we're all working together to support the athlete. And um, that to me is the, it's the way to manage the complexity, right? It's a complex yep. thing that we're dealing with, which an injured athlete getting back and to manage complexity, it helps when you've got people working together, right? Absolutely. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge way to, to cover your blind spots. Yeah. Well, the milestone alone is huge. And we've, we've gotten a lot of like post ACLs that come through our gym and we don't have quite the, uh, the bevy of tools that you have to evaluate them. But I mean, I can just tell you watching these kids move, you see some kids at six months, eight months that look great. 
And then you see others that are 12 months and they are nowhere near ready to be back out there yet. Kind of the blanket is, oh, it's six months, you know, okay, you're done with PT. You can go back out there now. So that's the frustrating thing that we see with kids. And it's like, man, no, like just don't do that. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I, it's funny. Like I, and you, you know, again, sometimes I think you really have to ask the question, like, are we, are we making a difference? And I mean, you know, uh, for those of you who like, I mean, people who maybe seen my little slant on things, I got this, uh, I use this blue chip and red chip analogy. uh, And I don't know, like, I don't want to get too off path here, but the blue chip and red chip analogy is like the weather, right? Like when the, when the forecaster gives you a weather forecast and calls for a 60% chance of rain, there's 60 red chips in the bucket and 40 blue. And if you shake that thing up and you reach in and you grab a chip, there's a 60% chance of rain and a 40% chance it won't. Yeah. And at the end of the day, a 40%, a 60% chance of rain if we're going back to the injury situation, it means that if somebody has a 60% chance of injury and you reach in and you pull out a blue chip, it doesn't justify, like you were a high risk environment there, right. but you could still grab a blue chip. And, and likewise, yeah. when you go to the, to the other one, let's say we're talking about a, a 10% chance of rain, which I think would be way better odds, right? I right. would way rather reach in and hoping get a blue chip on a, on a, on a, on a, you know, in a bucket that had, you know, 10, 10 red chips and 90 blue but there's still 10 red chips, right? If I reach in there yeah. and I pull out, there's yeah. still a chance you get red, right? Like yeah. That's that's reality. And we manage that that statistical probability all the time when we look at the weather and we, what does it do? It changes your behavior. If it's your wedding day, you're like, oh, 60% chance of rain. Oh, shoot. Oh, we better, we better plan to bring umbrellas and make sure we put up a, a tent or whatever. But, you know, you appreciate that. Oh man, we got lucky. It's a, it was a bluebird day, right? Because yep. there was a forty percent chance that it wouldn't, and likewise with the with the ten percent chance, you know, you you eat you eat that. But when it comes to this ACL injury thing, we get all wrapped up in what you know predicting, and I and I think about it in a bucket of blue chips and red chips. And when you really think about it that way, and you really start to think about what we're trying to do here, which is to better make the odds a little better. Doesn't you're never right. going to make that injury risk go to zero, right? But with that said, I've, I've had some really close friends uh, that I've developed over the years who, you know, we're, we're working together on our team. One of them is, a, she's a chiropractor, Dr. Courtney Brown, who's our uh, lead medical for Alpine. And her and I have been working more and more together. And she's starting to see, you know, how we work in our institute, you know, with all of this. And it was so funny that she got this athlete who'd been rehabilitated at a different training center after an ACL injury. And she was 13 months post-surgery. And this athlete comes roaring back into back into the um, uh, our training center, and she literally is like, "Matt, this athlete honestly looks like one of our athletes at five months post surgery." Like oh she was so like, and she was skiing and she was doing stuff, but she's like, "Holy cow!" And when we did our testing, and this is where we're starting to move it with our with our analysis, like we're building these algorithms now that we have enough data. That rather than being like, oh, you should be 10% on this and 5% on that or whatever, we're using all these metrics. And then what we're trying to output is what, imagine a timeline that shows your recovery after injury. What does the model predict for you in terms of where you are after your recovery? So if you're 13 months post-surgery, but we punch in all your numbers and it's like, you know what? The model thinks you're like five months. 
that's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Because that means that you're physically like you're missing stuff. You're looking like the people that are like way back here. And on the other hand, right. If you if you punch people's data into a model and it's like, hey, the model predicts that you look like you're 12 months after surgery, but you're only seven. Fantastic. You might be a good healer and you might be super dedicated to your rehab and you're you're tracking ahead of schedule. Right. And, you know, and, and lastly is like, you know, you're, you're hopefully on expectation, right? Is those are the three bins that we're using. And I guess at the end of the day, Mike, it's, it's back to that point is that we want to avoid the scenarios where we have athletes with a 60% chance of rain yep. who are 13 months post-surgery and back on the field to play and doing stuff. Yeah. And we recognize that, you know, even getting you to a point where there's only a 10% chance of rain, you could do everything right and it can all go wrong. And that's just the fact that it's, you know, it's complex and, it uh, you know, it really, really resonates with me. And I think it's important that all of us, like we get our thinking that way and we are able to contextualize that. And I'll tell you the blue chip and red chip analogy, I use it all the time with that athletes and I, cause we're going to have conversations like, well, you know, I saw so-and-so get out back on the, on the snow at four months. And, you know, I heard about this person who was back on at five, but you're telling me to wait till nine. And I'll be like, listen, imagine, imagine two buckets of blue chips and red chips. She could have pulled a blue chip in a bucket where there was a 60% chance of rain, but do you want to pull from this bucket or do you want to pull from this one? And Absolutely. that to me is a way to kind of, you know, frame up our, our role in this maybe as we start to prevent those high risk profiles, right? Yes. Like that's the, that's what we all see. Yeah, no, I love it. All right, man. I know we're up against the clock and you have something after this. So final question. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Matt Jordan one piece of advice about training and or life, what would it be? Um, you know, I think, I think the one, um, yeah, the one I'll just, I'll keep this really, um, kind of philosophical. The first thing is that don't deny yourself the things that you want in life um, out of fear of um, it being too much work or out of fear of what people will think. Like it's really, really important that if you feel something on your inside that you want to do and it's a burning passion for you and it's something that you want, go after it, go after it because um, that is never going to go away. And and you're going to get to a place in your life where no matter what, you're going to be like, I've got to attend to that. Like it's your, your problems don't go away from you and the things that you need and want are not going to go away from you. You can't escape it. You can't fly to, you know, I can fly to India. As soon as I get off that plane, those things are still there with me. You can't run away from those things. Right. And then the second piece that I would say is that I always measured my life in these Olympic cycles, right? Because, you know, 2002, 06, 2010, 2014, 2018. And I would be like, okay, so what's next? And you know, as I was moving along, I would reflect and say, you know what, I never would have predicted at the, at the, at the current Olympic uh, transition where I would be at the next Olympic transition. Like if you'd asked me in 02 where I would be in 06, I would have been dead wrong. Uh, right. 02, I was like in crescendoing in my life. And by 06, I was like, you know, my relationship was falling apart. My body was falling apart. I was actually in a horrible place in my life by 2010 I never would have imagined that I'd be divorced I'd be coming back from a you know pretty bad injury I'd have a kid and then 2014 I never would have predicted that I would have found the love of my life I would have been getting married again and I'd have 
you know, two kids on the way and, and a whole other world opening up to me. And I, I right. guess that's my point is that, you know, it's the, uh, just Forrest Gump might've had it right. We know when he was looking at the box of chocolates, you never know what you're <laughs> going to get. It's kind of right. Like you don't know what's around the corner. And what that tells you is you got to really appreciate the good times when they're good. And you got to realize that the bad times will pass. And, and all you can control is keep following your heart and doing what you love and putting your values first as a person, because that's all you can control. And, and, uh, you know, if I could go back to my former self, I would absolutely say, Hey, keep swinging, man, keep swinging and keep, keep your chin up and keep looking for what's important to you and expressing that every single day. Cause, um, that's, uh, that's the only way to lead your life. I love it, man. So, I love it. Yeah. Thank dude, Matt. This was so awesome. I feel like I could chat with you all, all day. Yeah, same, man. I same here. This is same. great. But again, I know you got stuff going on. So where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you got going? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, my website is jordanstrength.com. Um, I offer online education courses for coaches and trainers and strength coaches, particularly around my assessments and you know, dual force plate testing and just actually working on a course right now, looking at eccentric deceleration ability, how to train it, how to use it through rehab. We've got a few other online courses that will be coming out shortly. So uh, definitely check that out. Uh, my Twitter handle and Instagram handle is Jordan Strength. So you can uh, follow me there if, if you prefer. And, um, you know, uh, I would just say, you know, head to my website and sign up. If you're interested in what I have to say, sign up for my email list. I don't I don't send out emails like it might be three or four a year, but it's always around something that I've got going on. And, um, you know, if you're like, Hey, I wouldn't mind, you know, knowing when he's got a course going on or he's speaking somewhere or they got a new program. We do internships. Yep. Um, I take on graduate students. So if you've got listeners who are like, Oh man, I'd like to do a PhD or a master's, you know, hit me up and we'll, we'll, you know, we, we have a whole pathway at our Institute that we offer, you know, from internship to, to scholarship strength coach to fully, wrapped up and on the way like we have a full pathway there so yeah just um you know make sure if those things resonate with you then um go head to my website get on my list and uh or follow me and i'll make sure that anything i'm doing i put it out there and uh you you know that it's there and you can partake if you're interested awesome matt again this was so great man thank you so much for coming on the show buddy thank you yeah take care all right my friend that does it for this week's show with dr matt jordan Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. This guy is just a wealth of knowledge. And like I said in the show, I easily could have kept him around for another hour or two, but I really hope you took something away from the show. If you did, do me one of two favors. Number one, if you're not already, subscribe to the show. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. I think we're even on Amazon now because Amazon has all of the things. So you can find the podcast just about anywhere. So if you're not already subscribed, do that now. If you are subscribed, I appreciate it. Do me one further. Go to iTunes, leave a rating and a review. Ratings and reviews are the easiest way for more people to find out about the show. And if you know anything about my mission, the thing that drives me each and every day, the reason I continue to create this podcast is because I want to help young trainers, young coaches, people that don't have the right mentors out there. I want to help guide them and shape them and expose them to all of the great people that come on this show. So if you would give me give me a rating or a review. It would be very, very much appreciated. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode. Again, thank you so much for listening. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.